I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles here and at home. We're going to be looking in Acts chapter 21 this morning. We're actually not going to be digging too much into Paul's testimony in uh, chapter 22. But uh, what he says, what comes after uh, his initial encounter with this mob that's, that's beating him and obviously trying to kill him, his testimony is crucial to understanding uh, his heart in the midst of this, this violent attack that he is, he is suffering. Um, so I thought it was important in reading the scripture to you this morning uh, that I go ahead and read that first part of chapter 22, that you would be able to hear that testimony for yourself. Uh, but we're going to be mostly focusing in on the tail end of chapter 21 this morning. And uh, I'd invite you as well to make your way to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3 verses 14 and 15, 13, 14, and 15 as well. So put, t- take your bulletin. and, and We don't have bulletins. <laughs> Take it. You, you got scraps of paper. I know you got scraps of paper. You, you find yourself a scrap of paper, and you stick it there in, in 1 Peter 3. We'll be there in just a moment. Um, so uh, I just before we jump in this morning, I do just want to read to you from chapter 21, and um, verses 37 and following. And I, I want to just read this to you, remind you of this particular uh, passage, and then, uh, as is our custom, we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord to help us that his spirit would illuminate the text, and then, and then we'll jump in, we'll dive in, we'll get to work. Verse 37, it says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he's, he's being arrested, he said to the tribune, this is the Roman soldier that's in charge of the whole garrison, uh, he's the one overseeing the centurions. You'll recall a centurion is overseeing a hundred. A tribune would oversee a large number of centurions. He's the sort of the captain of the guard, you might say. And Paul, he's just been beaten. We assume severely beaten. Uh, probably, I mean, it, it would be safe to say he's been kicked and, and stomped and who knows what all. He's probably got broken ribs. Uh, Definitely, you could say, cuts that require stitches and that sort of thing. He's just been beaten, and he's being arrested by the tribune. And he says to the tribune, may I say something to you? The tribune hears him speaking in Greek. And he says, you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Surely you're that terrorist everybody's been looking for. And Paul replies, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Notice this. I beg you. Notice that. I beg you. Permit me to speak to the people. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord in heaven, we see our dear brother, the Apostle Paul, being taken captive, being arrested and and taken into the barracks to face the scrutiny, the interrogation of the Roman Tribune and various Roman soldiers. He's already been wrongly accused of defiling the temple. He's already been savagely assaulted and kicked and beaten. And they have attempted in this moment to murder him. And in the midst of all of this, Lord, our brother, the Apostle Paul, has a heart to share the gospel. Father, may that be true of us today. As we look at this text this morning, I pray that your spirit would convict us, Lord, that your word would speak deeply into our hearts, that we would be reminded again from your word that the worship of you is more than life, that the proclamation of this good news is our future and our destiny. Help us to be the people that you have called us to be, Lord, work in our hearts this morning to show us that all that we are is wrapped up in all that you have done for us. We delight to know more of you this morning, Lord. Work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many articles have been published recently in the last couple of weeks uh, pontificating over what the future of the church is going to look like in the wake of COVID-19. There is, of course, the usual reference to 
uh, to new procedures for welcoming guests. I mean, this uh, Eventbrite, this website where they're issuing tickets and they're trying to limit the number of individuals that are allowed to attend or to participate in worship. There are other things that are being uh, done, some of which we've adopted here. You know, touchless touchless bathrooms, uh, you know, touchless uh, water faucets and, and paper towel dispensers and, and that sort of thing. But uh, what is interesting is that many pastors are now suggesting that live streaming is going to become a permanent fixture of their ministry. Pastors who just a year ago would never have really valued or seen a need to live stream or broadcast their worship services. And others are suggesting that as a, as a result of COVID-19, as a result of the pandemic, the, the larger gathering of the saints is over. It's dead. They're, there's, it, what they're going to do instead is they're going to just take their churches and break them up into smaller groups, smaller gatherings, home church, uh, having five to ten people meeting in homes around the city. And so there's a lot of different individuals who are uh, considering what COVID-19 has done to the gathering and and thinking about what the future of the church is going to look like in the aftermath of the pandemic. I find myself, as I'm reading these articles and considering these various arguments, uh, I find myself mostly just sort of disagreeing with some of the underlying assumptions that uh, undergird these discussions. Uh, as far as what they're t- discussing, they're, they're talking really about what steps need to be taken in order to make people feel comfortable, in order to make people feel safe in terms of gathering together to worship the Lord. If our considerations in terms of the regathering of the church extend solely and exclusively to what makes us feel safe, to what makes us feel comfortable then I fear we have bigger problems to face than COVID-19. We may never have been worshiping Jesus Christ to begin with if in our approach to the worship of him, our fundamental question is what makes us feel comfortable? What makes us feel safe? The worship of Jesus Christ is an act of devotion. It is the praise of his glory And as C.S. Lewis penned it so beautifully in that classic children's tale, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, our king is good, but he's not safe. He's not safe. So what is the future of the church? I'd like to put it in the words of Ralph Winter, the director of the United States Center for World Missions, writing in his book, The Essential Components of a World Evangelization in 1978. These words are over 40 years old, but just as timely today as they were then. He offers us this counsel regarding the future of the church. He says, we would do well to recognize what seems to be the consistent thrust of the entire Bible, that unless and until in faith the future of the world the future of the world becomes more important to us than the future of the church, then the church has no future. As Jesus put it, Winter goes on, as Jesus put it, the most dangerous thing any disciple could ever do is to seek to save their own lives. I'd like to turn that quote around for you this morning and put it this way. World evangelization is the only future that any church has. Proclaiming the gospel, making the name of Jesus known, that is our only dream for the future. The church can say amen to that. Paul is sitting here in Jerusalem. He has worked to get to Jerusalem in order to worship with the brothers and sisters of the Jerusalem church. You'll recall all the way back in chapter 20, he's hustling to make it to Jerusalem. His only dream is to be with the Jerusalem church on the festival of Passover. He wants to be there to worship with them during the holiday season. He is hustling to get there. He makes it to Jerusalem during the height of the festival season in which the city, in welcoming Jews from all over the empire, may have swelled to as many as two or three million people. It is packed Every Airbnb is booked. 
Every bedroom is full. Every basement suite is rented. He makes it there. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm here to worship, to celebrate Passover with my dear brothers and sisters here in the Jerusalem church. I come bearing gifts, money, in fact, from all of your sister Gentile churches all across the empire. And they say, that's great. But we just aren't, we're just worried that you're just not Jewish enough for us. We need you to go through this Nazarite, uh, this Nazarite thing because everybody here in our church has heard that, that uh, wrongly, of course, that, uh, that you're just slamming all of the traditions and the law and the temple and all this kind of stuff. And, and we just want, we're just really worried about the image. It's the optics of this thing that concern us. And so what we want you to do is we want you to go through this whole Nazarite vow thing. And uh, here's some other guys that are going to be doing it. We, you pay their expenses, and, and then everybody will know that you also uh, have a high regard for the temple and, and, and all of the rituals and customs of Judaism. And so though this undoubtedly grated against Paul's nerves in a desire to have unity with his brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church, being very concerned not to be schismatic, not to be unnecessarily divisive, he goes through with it. As Pastor Ryan preached last Sunday, he wanted to present this offering for the sake of unity. Okay, so he goes through with it. He does it. Now, what's fascinating is in the midst of this, as he is completing this ritual, this, this uh, Nazarite vow that he's been pursuing with these other guys, he is still caught red-handed, not by Christians, but by Jews, probably from Ephesus, where you'll recall he had planted a church and had been so successful that everybody brought all their witchcraft and their books on the occult and all of this stuff, and they basically had a huge bonfire and burned $50,000 worth of goods there. The Jews hated him or were trying to drive him out of the city. He had a confrontation. He's now here in Jerusalem, and most likely it is Jews from Ephesus who recognize him. Say, so how do you know that, Pastor Josh? Well, they supposed, the text tells us, that they supposed he had taken Trophimus into the inner court of the temple. You'd have to understand temple architecture to really appreciate this. You had the outer court, what was known as the court of the Gentiles. And there, were, there was about a four-foot, Josephus tells us there's about a four-foot wall that uh, was erected to separate the outer court of the Gentiles from the inner court. Of course, the Gentiles weren't allowed to go into the inner court where sacrifices would be made and priests would preside over that whole affair. And, and there was written in various languages on this half wall, this, uh, this sort of... Uh, banister sort of wall around the, uh, the inner court, uh, all kinds of warnings. And, and Josephus even tells us that it was written in, in Greek and Aramaic and, and in various languages that if you were a Gentile and you entered into the inner court, you would die and it w- your blood was on your own head. So they were very clear, outsiders not welcome. They saw Paul in the city previously in the week with Trophimus who was a Gentile. And they had supposed, given his preaching and his emphasis on the grace of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, they had supposed that as they interpreted his preaching to be a disdainment for the law, that he was taking Trophimus, a Gentile, into the sacred inner court where only Jews were allowed to go. Now, they weren't really interested in understanding the facts of the case. You see, they were already prepared to kill Paul. They just were looking for reasons to go through with it. They weren't interested in pulling Trophimus inside and saying, hey, where have you been this week? They weren't interested in having a conversation with Paul. They hated the gospel. They hated the message of Jesus Christ. And so, having encountered him, they rushed at him, okay? It says in verse 30, all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple. And this is a phrase that just tempts preachers like me, preachers all over the world. You you are almost tempted to go slightly allegorical here because it's such a beautiful poetic statement that Luke makes. It says they seized Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, verse 30, and Luke makes this comment, at once the temple gates were shut. And you just want in that moment to be like, oh, you see, like God is shutting off the temple and now you can't go into the temple. Now it's all about the gospel. And and I've actually, in my reading and research this week, many, many, many 
Uh, commentators took that approach. I'm not going to do that for you this morning, although I think it's a wonderfully poetic uh, mention that Luke includes here. Paul is dragged out of the temple, and the Jews, in an attempt to keep the temple pure and holy, as violence is ensuing right there on the threshold, on the doorpost of the temple, of course they would shut the gates in order to make sure, as this beatdown was occurring, that that violence didn't spill over into the temple. After all, they want to keep this house of prayer holy. So even though people who had just a moment ago been worshiping in the temple are now right outside engaged in gross acts of violence, they're going to preserve the appearance of the holiness of the temple by closing those temple gates while Paul is now being savagely attacked. Verse 31, they were seeking to kill him. This was no just sort of let's smack him around a little bit and teach him a lesson. The text is clear. These guys intended murder. They intended for him to be executed. They were not pulling their punches. These are not little smacks across the face. There's a mob of them. Paul is on the ground being savagely beaten. For sure, he has cuts on his body, multiple, that would require stitches. For sure, they had been kicking him and stomping him probably bruised ribs. For sure, they are spitting and smacking him and punching him in the face. Probably he is concussed. You can assume that Paul has just endured the, the kind of violence that normally would require a visit to the ER. And in the midst of all of this, the tribune who is responsible for the security of Jerusalem, just on the northwest corner, their barracks are located, the northwest corner of the temple. He's up in the barracks, and he hears that all Jerusalem is in confusion. He grabs a couple of centurions and some soldiers. They rush into the crowd, and not a moment too soon, because surely Paul was on the verge of being executed. They break the crowd up. They rescue Paul, and they're trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some were shouting another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers. Paul is picked up by the Roman soldiers and is having to be carried into the barracks because the crowd is close on their heels, still attempting to kill Paul. So they're rushing this guy inside. And in the midst of all of this, the mob is crying out, away with him. Verse 36, away with him. And as Paul is about to be brought into the barracks, verse 37 tells us, he speaks to the tribune, may I say something to you? Asking for permission in the midst of all of that chaos and violence, he's asking for permission to speak to the tribune. Of course, he speaks in Greek which would be the natural language of this particular individual. Paul, being very well educated, being able to speak in multiple tongues, speaks to the tribune in Greek. And hearing that, the tribune assumes that this must be the guy from Egypt, this, uh, this terrorist that has stirred up a revolt in Egypt. He makes that assumption, and he questions him. Are, are you that terrorist that we've been looking for? And Paul replies, no, actually, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Now, in this moment, Paul is seeking permission to speak to the crowd, to speak to everyone who is gathered there. He is seeking in this moment to share his faith, to make an argument for the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of us have ever been in a situation like this. Broken, bruised ribs, probably a concussion, gushing blood everywhere, and the first thing he's thinking, which I'm sure none of us would be thinking, is how now do I witness to this guy? And given recent trends in evangelicalism, uh, we've seen this resurgence of, of uh, popularity with regards to apologetics. And it's not wrong. It's really good to study the apologetic arguments for the faith. I mean, there's the classic big four, Right? The big four, I'm sure you've heard of them. There's the cosmological argument for God. There's the, there's the moral argument for God. There's the Greek word te teleological argument for God. There's the ontological argument for God. Some of you are like, well, I know what the moral argument is, and those other ones sound really fancy. 
Let me explain them to you. And if you've been to any of these apologetics conferences, I'm sure you've heard them. Of course, the moral argument is really popular, made famous by C.S. Lewis in that classic apologetic work, uh, The Mere Christianity, in which he says that because all of us sense that there is a moral law, there must therefore be a law giver. The fact that we intrinsically know what is right and what is wrong and that we know we ought not to do this and we should do that, even though all of us try to violate that law, the fact that we feel this way, the fact that we have these inclinations impressed into our soul ought to tell us, there ought to be evidence then that there is someone who wrote those things on our heart. The other argument would be the cosmological argument. This would be more fitting for some of the more scientific individuals among us. The idea here being that something can't come from nothing. Aristotle first proposed this with his famous uh, analogy, the unmoved mover, commenting on motion happening all around the world. He says, we see everything is in a constant state of flux and motion. Well, the question is, who put it into motion? Who was the original mover, the unmoved mover, who then set the rest of the world into motion? Or we could talk about the teleological argument, from the Greek word telos, meaning end. What is the end of this thing? To what end is this occurring? This argument was made famous by Sir Isaac Newton, the father of Newtonian physics. What goes up must come down. He invented what we refer to today as the watchmaker's analogy. You see a watch with all of these intricate gears and springs and all of this elaborate, uh, sophisticated machinery, and when you see that watch, you don't automatically conclude that it came from nowhere. It was designed with a goal in mind. It has an end for which it was intended. Therefore, the watch must have an inventor, someone who designed it, who made it the way that it is. As Paul is getting ready to speak to the tribune, being as educated, being as smart as he is, clearly being able to speak in a multitude of languages, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek for sure, you would think that he would then turn incredibly theological or maybe even philosophical in trying now to persuade this group of people about the truth of Jesus Christ. He could have focused his arguments on the Greek tribune, but instead, no, he turns to the Jewish mob that has been trying to kill him. So, understanding that the Jews already believe in God, it's probably not necessary for him to engage in the classical philosophical arguments proving the existence of God. No, what he might do instead is just engage them in terms of their heritage, their legacy, all of those values that they hold dear. After all, Paul understands that Jerusalem, Israel in particular, is God's special people. After all, God had chosen Israel to be his own special possession. My kids, when they were younger, they had a favorite toy that they wanted to sleep with at night. Be it a teddy bear or a blankie or something, you know, some kind of a thing. They couldn't sleep without having that special thing. My daughter, once upon a time, reading this text with her in a quiet devotion, made the observation. So what this passage is saying is that Israel was like God's blankie, the thing that he couldn't sleep with, that he couldn't go to sleep if he didn't have at night. Now, that's not exactly how I would put it, but uh, she's identifying with a fondness for a particular item, for a particular toy in this case, and it's not wrong to understand God in that way, having a particular fondness for Israel. The scriptures speak of this. Remember that God had chosen Israel from all of the peoples all over the earth. For example, in Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, Moses reminds the people of Israel, he says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Or in Isaiah 43, 1, again, we read, But now says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Here's what he says, fear not, 
For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God was to be Israel's God in a very unique way. Not only are they his people, but he talks about himself as being specifically and specially their God. Not at all to say that he's not God of all the universe, but that he is establishing a special relationship with Israel. The heart and the essence of the covenant that God makes with Israel in Genesis 17:7 is this, quote, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And he reaffirms it again in Exodus. He says, I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So Israel was God's chosen people. He was their God. And Paul, just before this beating he's encountering here in Acts chapter 21, had previously written a letter to the church in Rome in which he says, pointing out the privileges of Israel, quote, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all and blessed forever. Paul could have said all of these things. Listen, guys, you're missing it. You're the special chosen people of God, but you're not acting like it. You've got the promises, the patriarchs. You've got the law. You've got the scriptures. You've got the testimony. All of your nation's history is pointing to the fact that God has been there to you in a special way. And guess what? He is still here. He has come, but you missed it. He could have said that, couldn't he? He could have said all of these things. But what he does instead doesn't offer a philosophical argument He doesn't get nitty-gritty with the scriptures and make a theological proof for why Jesus is the Messiah. Having just been savagely beaten, having endured who knows what kinds of injuries, he asks the question, may I please speak? If you're concussed and losing blood, And there is no assurance that you're going to see tomorrow, let alone the end of today. What do you say to the people who are trying to kill you? Look at what Paul says. Chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Let me explain this. He goes on, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, brought up in this city. I'm one of you guys, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. You know Gamaliel, I know Gamaliel. I'm one of you. You know me. I grew up here. Verse 6, as I was on my way and drawing near to Damascus, About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you? And the response came back, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Paul doesn't get philosophical. Paul doesn't get down nitty-gritty theological. You know what he does? Paul shares his testimony. Here's the reason for why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. I know Jesus Christ. But I'm struck time and again as I read this particular text this week. I'm struck time and again I mean, there, there are lots of different uh, verses here in this passage that I was intrigued by, but the one that just pressed on my heart all throughout the week, in the midst of it all, having been beaten and having an attempt made on his life, Paul, having been momentarily rescued from the mob, wants to turn right back around at the door to the barracks where he might actually be dragged into some 
cell that might afford him some degree of safety. And he stops there. And he says, I want to speak to the crowd. Is that your heart? Let's just be real honest with ourselves this morning. If you're beaten and bloodied and broken and being dragged into a jail cell, is the first thought you have as they are carrying you physically away from the attacking crowd to stop them in their tracks so you can start preaching? I'm going to be honest with you. It's not my first thought. And it's probably not your first thought either. But it was his first thought. (laughs) How does that happen? When we talk about evangelism, and essentially as we're talking about the future of the church, all of these different pontifications that are being made, as people are saying, well, I don't know what the future of our gathering is going to look like, whether we're going to have a gathering, we're going to break it down into smaller groups, you know, how are we going to make people feel more comfortable to come back to church? All, all of these kinds of things, the questions that present themselves to my mind over and over again is, are we in the midst of a world that has demonstrated that living is the most important thing rather than knowing who the author of life is in a world that has demonstrated that over and over and over again, are we going to feel the compulsion deep in our hearts to proclaim Jesus? We have no guaranteed future We have no promises regarding tomorrow, but what we have been told time and again is that we are his witnesses. So what happens to you tomorrow, I cannot say. What happens to you next week, I could not guess with any degree of certainty. But what God calls us to in this moment, what Paul is clearly demonstrating to us in this moment is whatever tomorrow looks like, whatever the next 15 minutes might look like, we're called to proclaim the gospel. I was looking at this passage and the, the other passage of scripture is, you know, one of the key methods of interpreting scripture is to compare scripture to scripture, interpret scripture by scripture. I'm trying to think through what's going on in Paul's mind and what's going on in his heart. And as I was pondering this, the exhortation from 1 Peter came to mind this week. I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writing to a church under persecution, writing to a church that is on the run, that is facing imprisonment, perhaps death, a church that is being chased and hunted, Peter, writing to this church, offers this statement. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And he offers this statement, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Jesus Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make, look at this, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Paul starts off, he says, brothers and fathers, let me make my defense for you. Peter is saying, hey, whatever happens, whether you're persecuted or not, be zealous for what is good, but always be ready to make a defense. Do you see the connection between these two verses? Paul's like, here's my defense And Peter, writing much later, says, always be ready to make a defense. Can we say of Paul that in the worst of circumstances, of the many things that were surely going through his mind, he was ready to make his defense? Absolutely. So I'm pondering this verse this week, and I'm asking the question, why is it that more of us are not making the defense for Jesus Christ? My wife and I, when we first got married... Our life was constantly changing. When we first got married, our dream of our future was that we would uh, go to school, get an education, get a degree in something, go into business or get a job, that we would then have a house with a little white picket fence and a dog of some form and uh, 2.5 children, which is the American standard, right? That was our dream for our future. Well, almost from the moment we graduated high school, 9-11 happened. 
And there was a responsibility. Young men, the world, the country over, enlisted into the armed services because there were certain things that had to be addressed. There is no future for our country if we don't confront the reality of terrorism. My wife's dream, my dream, our dream, of the little white picket fence with the 2.5 kids and the dog out front barking in the yard was gone the moment 19 hijackers decided to fly two planes into two towers. Our future was different instantly the next day. Our reality was fundamentally altered. So then I'm a United States Marine, and my wife is thinking, okay, he's going to go through boot camp, infantry training battalion. He's going to be stationed to some place, some base somewhere, Pendleton or Camp Lejeune on the East Coast, wherever. And after a period of time, I will move there with him. We will have a house on base. He will go and train every day to go to war and kill people, but we'll still have a little house with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids and a dog. And that didn't happen either. So then, after my time in the Marines was over, I moved back to Texas, and my wife said, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, we did that. Now he's going to get his education, and we'll settle down in a nice house somewhere with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids and a dog. And then the Lord said, go to Canada. (laughs) I still have my wife here. Absolutely. So we moved to Canada, and my wife is thinking, finally, we're going to have a house with a white picket fence. 2.5 kids and a dog. And as we're confronting the reality of the situation in front of us, yes, we have 2.5 kids. Actually, we could round it up to three. We ended up with more than one dog. We have two. I hate the one but love the other. (laughs) It's not exactly what we dreamed. There's no white picket fence. And I'm glad for that, because I don't have to paint that thing every week, you know. (laughs) Our future is not what we imagined. We find ourselves working very hard to build a school so that we can disciple our kids in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. We find ourselves working very hard to share the gospel with our neighbors in the cul-de-sac. And that's very difficult, because... They go into their houses and they never come out. In the states where we're from, everybody sits on their front porch in the evening and yells at each other across the road. That just doesn't happen here. If you yell at each other across the road, they think you're a terrorist and they call the RCMP or bylaws, which is just is actually worse in my opinion. <laughs> you have ideas about your future. The Lord has ideas about your future. Paul thinks he's going to go to Jerusalem and that he's going to celebrate Passover. Paul thinks he's going to go and he's going to bring this offering from all of these Gentile churches, showing his appreciation for the mother church, all that she's done and sacrificed to see the gospel go forth to the ends of the world. He wants to worship with these guys. And the moment he gets there, They're like, hey, go take a vow so we can actually have some respect for who you are. Go pretend like you actually believe and uphold all these things. Go through all this ritual so we can be satisfied about you. So he's doing it, and he's thinking, okay, I'm now done with my ritual. Now we're going to have some Passover. It's going to be great. We're going to roast some lamb. We're going to sit down. We're going to reflect on all that God has done for the nation of Israel from the days of Abraham to the Exodus to today with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Yes, no. You're going to be violently assaulted just as you're completing this ritual in the temple. There will be no Passover. You're going to jail today. Your future is not set. You are not in control of what happens to you tomorrow. You are not in control of what is going to happen to you in the next 15 minutes Your only future as a child of God is to delight in him and to proclaim his 
glory to whomever you can. That's your future. That's what God has for you. Do I want you to have the house with the white picket fence, the 2.5 kids and the annoying dog in the front yard? Sure, that would be great. But can I promise you that's what God has for you? No, I could never, ever say that that is how your life is going to look. The question isn't what is your dream for your life. The question is what is God's dream for your life. And in all of the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, as Mr. Winter, the director of the U.S. Center for World Evangelism, put it all the way back in 1978, we wonder about the future. We wonder about the future of our churches. We wonder about the future of our families. We have no future apart from proclaiming the gospel. So the question is, since that's our future, since that's our destiny, how do we get ready to make that defense? Peter gives us some instruction on that. He makes the statement here. He says, in your hearts, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. This is how Peter encourages these individuals who are facing persecution, who are facing uh, suffering. And this is really the first state of being a faithful Christian, being ready to explain to others what it is that Christ has done in your life, the change, the difference that he has made. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what does it mean then for us to be prepared to make a case, to make a defense for the hope that we have, wherein Does this preparedness, this readiness to make this defense, wherein does it consist? And how are we to get prepared and how are we to stay prepared? As I pose these questions to myself, I was reminded, again, as a result of recent events and and writings and things that I've put together for the church, of the passage from Matthew chapter 10 in which Jesus says to the disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men. They're going to deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. When they deliver you over, he says, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. And this is crucial. We want to accumulate arguments for ourselves. We want to pile up philosophical, apologetic arguments. We want to be able to say, here is the ontological argument. Here is the teleological argument. Here is the cosmological argument. Here's the, you know, we want to go to these apologetics conferences. We want to learn all of these really great arguments for why Jesus is true, why God is real. But Jesus says, when you are arrested and dragged before authorities, don't worry beforehand what you are to say. Whatever it is that Peter is encouraging these churches here to do in terms of being ready to make a defense for their faith, it cannot first and foremost be about developing a repertoire or a menu of prepackaged apologetic arguments. There must be something deeper that Peter is getting at here. So what does it mean then? What does it mean? The least that we can say is that there is a wrong way to go about it. Of course, there is a right way, but there is a wrong way. Peter says, always be prepared to make a case for the hope that you have. Jesus, of course, says, don't meditate, don't worry beforehand, don't be anxious beforehand about what you are to say. So this makes the question for us that much more crucial. How are we to get ready? How are we to be prepared to make the defense? The clue that put me onto the track of this particular passage, understanding it, was the relationship that I found between the phrase, be prepared, which is here in verse 15, and the phrase that comes just before it. Now, there's no verb in the phrase, be ready or be prepared. Literally, what Peter is saying is, reverence or honor Christ the Lord in your hearts, ready always to make a case for your hope. This whole be prepared or get prepared, that's not actually in there. So this suggests that there is a very close connection between honoring Christ in your hearts and always being ready or prepared to make the case for your hope. 
To reverence Christ, to honor Christ in your heart is the preparation to making a defense for Christ. Okay? One key to understanding this is verse 14. If you'd backtrack to verse 14, Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He goes on to say, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Lord as holy. Might, might make the suggestion that we insert the word instead, okay? So he says, don't have any fear of them, but instead honor Christ as holy. It's the alternative. If, if we want to not be afraid of man, then the way that we are not afraid of man is by actively choosing to honor Christ. So whatever honoring Christ as holy means, it has to be the opposite of being afraid of men. Jesus must be a source of confidence and hope to us. And that word hope, I use that word because it explains why there is such a close relationship between the honoring of the Lord in our hearts on the one hand and always being ready to make a case for our hope on the other hand. Okay? I want you to picture this text as like a a sandwich. Okay? Peanut butter and jelly. You got two pieces of bread. For those of you who've never come across a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You've got two pieces of bread, and you've got peanut butter and jelly, and you sandwich that in the middle, right? That's the idea there. The top piece of bread says, don't be afraid of your adversaries. Don't be troubled. And the bottom piece of the bread says, always be ready to make a case for the hope that you feel inside. And the middle part, the jelly, or the peanut butter, that helps it stick together is the phrase honor Christ in your heart. Honor Christ in your heart. So how shall we not fear when the path of righteousness leads us into darkness? And the answer is we will not be afraid when we honor Christ in our hearts. The question is how will we always be ready to make a case for the hope that is in us? Well, the answer is Honor the Lord Jesus Christ in your hearts. See, what Peter is saying here, when we read this phrase, always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you, what he is saying is, you need to have a lot of hope in you. If you are consumed with a passion for Jesus, then you don't have to worry about accumulating arguments because you are passionate for Jesus. You cannot argue in defense of something that you are not passionate for. To be able to make a defense for Christ will require that you be passionate for Jesus. That's really the thrust of what Peter is saying here. You've got these two pieces of bread, but the thing that sticks it all together, not being afraid of men and always being ready to make a defense, is the honoring of Christ in your hearts, keeping him as holy. When Paul is on the doorstep of the barracks being dragged inside by the Roman soldiers, he's not thinking to himself, man, I can't wait to get into that prison cell so I can have a little peace and quiet. What is going through Paul's heart in that moment is Jesus Christ is Lord. This is his moment. This is happening according to his control. I have been given this moment to witness to the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. I cannot get around that verse. Broken, bruised, beaten man being dragged into a jail cell. (laughs) Concussed, broken ribs, who knows? And he taps the tribune. Excuse me. May I say something? Can you just see it? Excuse me. I'd like to say something. Guys, we are looking at a world that's going to be different forever from what we had previously known. My wife is sitting here in the sanctuary this morning thinking... Man, and I just got that white picket fence and the 2.5 kids and the dog 
And then COVID-19 comes. You see, we have these dreams of like our kids growing up and loving the Lord and maybe getting married and maybe having their own white picket fence and 2.5 kids and a dog. And we can go visit grandkids. We have these dreams of, uh, you know, maybe I'll be the one to officiate at my daughter's wedding. Or, you know, if she has some other pastor she prefers, maybe I'll at least have the honor of walking her down the aisle. That's not the future that God promises. What we see here with the Apostle Paul and what we need to come to terms with is that our future is in Christ. We are assured of a glorious tomorrow, but it is in his time. In these times, are the times that he has given to us to proclaim him to the world. And so the question that I want to leave you with this morning, whenever you are confronted with any kind of a difficulty in being a Christian, whenever you are faced with any kind of an ostracism or a criticism, whenever anyone ever makes fun of you for anything to do with Jesus Christ, is your thought in that moment to tap them on the shoulder? And to say, can I say something to you? Can I speak to you about Jesus? In the words of Ralph Winter, the director of World Missions and Evangelism, we do well to recognize what seems to be the consistent thrust of the whole Bible, that unless and until in faith, the future of the world becomes more important to us than the future of our church. The church has no future. As Jesus put it, the most dangerous thing we can do is to seek to save our own lives. Jesus saves us in his way, in his time. We exist to proclaim Christ to the nations. May I please speak to you? Bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his courage. We thank you, Lord, for his commitment to proclaiming the good news. He didn't accumulate arguments so much as be passionate in his worship and his praise of you. Lord, this morning, as your people reflect on this text, help us not to disdain arguments. Lord, help us not to be afraid of apologetic arguments, but Lord, help us more so than pursuing good arguments. Help us to pursue you, knowing you, treasuring you, worshiping you, exalting you. Father, help us to surrender our lives in their entirety into your hands. We pray, God, that you'd help us to do that this morning in Christ's name.